All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is Eric Kaufman with two N's, K-A-U-F-M-A-N-N. He published a very fascinating book, very timely book uh, back in 2018. The title of that book is White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. And Dr. Kaufman is professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He has also written other books. One title is Changing Places, Mapping the White British Response to Ethnic Change, 2014. Another title is Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, Demography and Politics in 21st Century, 2010. The Orange Order, a Contemporary Northern Irish History from 2007, and also The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, The Decline of Dominant Ethnicity in the United States, published 2004. He's also written two other books. He can be found at Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M and on his website at www.sneps.net. But some of the information from the rise and fall of Anglo-America, I mean, it's pretty clear to me that it's included in this book. And I think it's a very fascinating topic about how these really tectonic plate shift changes are really happening, not only in the U.S., but all over the world. But he can talk more about that. So Dr. Eric Kaufman, are you there? Great. Thanks. Thanks, William. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just for those listeners who are wondering why I don't sound like a Brit, I mean, I'm Canadian and I, but I've lived over here for over over 20 years. Uh, all my academic career has been in, in the UK for the most part. Uh, and yeah, just got interested. You, you mentioned the rise and fall of Anglo-America. I mean, this is kind of a theme. This 2004 uh, book, which came out of my PhD work in the late 90s, that was a time um, when people like Samuel Huntington uh, were writing when the issue would have been around political correctness and multilingual education and these sorts of questions. Uh, and I think those, those issues are very much with us. Uh, it came back really in a sort of sharper form in, in the era of Trump and wokeness. And, and so this is sort of, I'm kind of returning to the theme of, of you know, some 20 years uh, ago and and yeah, it's it sort of I got interested in this really as somebody who grew up a lot abroad because my dad was in the Canadian embassy. I, I grew up a bit in in Japan and so you know just became interested in issues of national identity. And then I'm from Vancouver, Canada, which has had a lot of um, Asian immigration, and so I'm also interested in these questions of of ethnic change and. Um, ethnicity, not just as what minorities have, but also as what majorities have and how majorities then respond to these ethnic shifts caused as, as a part of these global demographic uh, changes that we're, we're kind of living through. And, and that's the context also for the rise of um, national populism in Europe and, and the United States and elsewhere. So that, that was sort of really what the book was largely about. Right. So you just see, but I think that you have a really cogent historical background about these changes, particularly in the U.S., the prequel to the white shift and how there's always been this kind of battle between the recent influx and the reaction to that influx all the way up to the present. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that background, at least in the U.S. and Canada and some of the and you, in the U.K. and these countries that you're very familiar with, how that historical change has, has started from way yeah. back centuries ago. Well, yeah, I mean, the first point to note is that um, most countries have an ethnic majority, and by ethnic majority, I'm talking about groups that see themselves as descended from common ancestors. So in in Britain, within, in, you know, England, which forms, you know, nearly 90% of, of Britain, 
the ethnic majority would be the English. Uh, in Scotland, it would be the ethnic Scots, for example. So these are uh, communities of ancestry. They don't make up the entire population, but they typically make up a majority. Now, it's been, whereas the nation state, like United Kingdom, is a territorial and political unit, whereas ethnicity is about subjective belief in common ancestry and attachment to a collective memory. Uh, and so that actually also exists in so-called immigrant nations like Canada and the U.S. So the U.S., even though uh, it is a new world formation, um, if you read what a lot of founding fathers wrote and historians wrote in the 19th century, um, very clearly was seen as, yes, it's the American creed and the Declaration of Independence and these liberal principles, uh, but very also a very strong implicit kind of uh, white Anglo-Protestantism, which was very much the kind of ethnic majority of the U.S. Now, it was kind of absorptive and assimilative, um, but then, but it's, I think, wrong to talk about the U.S. as a sort of nation of immigrants radically different from something like the English. It's not. It's actually, I think, more similar uh, than different. Same thing in Canada, by the way. Now, what happens in the U.S. is you get into the migration of Catholics uh, and some Jews as well in the uh, late, not, well, Catholics beginning in the sort of early, mid-19th century and then um, continuing right through until the 1924 Immigration Act, and then the, the Jewish migration, much smaller, but still in the sort of late 19th, early 20th century, changing the composition of the population so that that white Anglo-Protestant group declines from, you know, essentially being roughly 80 to 90 percent of the white population of America to being more like 50 percent by about 1920. And there you saw the upsurge of a lot of Things that would be recognizable to us today, sort of anti-immigration sentiment, uh, populism, and so forth. Uh, this time more anti-Catholic. And this is what leads eventually to the immigration restrictions of the 1920s. Um, I'm interested in this process of, of uh, migration, uh, ethnic change, and the response of, of, if you like, the established ethnic majority groups. So white shift is very much about the these white ethnic majorities, which are declining in, as their share of the population is declining uh, from pretty close to, in many European countries and in Canada, pretty close to uh, almost the entire population, becoming less than 50% around mid-century in the US, Canada, New Zealand, and, to, and a little bit later in Australia, and then by the end of the century in many West European immigrant receiving nations. So it's that process of ethnic majority decline I focus on. Uh, I try not to demonize, you know, I think there's too much demonization of ethnic majorities. It is an ethnic group like any other ethnic group, which people are attached to, not because they want to control and dominate others, but for the same reasons minority uh, people are attached to, to minority ethnicity, which is the attachment to myths, symbols, culture, etc. Now, it can be virulent like anything, any other ideology can be virulent if it becomes racially ex exclusive if you're against it or marriage, if you're against mixing, if you uh, become obsessed with race purity. Uh, all of these things are risks, of course, um, but those risks exist in every ideology, including religion, including uh, socialism and, and liberalism. And all of these ideologies taken to an extreme are dangerous. Um, but anyway, I wanted to sort of go through that history to say that the process we're going in through now, in fact, the U.S. has been through in the past uh, when the white Anglo-Protestant group um, essentially experienced rapid ethnic change, had immigration restriction, populism, 
Um, then during the period from the 1920s through to the 1960s and 70s uh, underwent uh, a transformation as it assimilated the uh, descendants of Catholic and Jewish immigrants into a new uh, white American group, which then emerges uh, really not sharply until after Kennedy's assassin or Kennedy's presidency, um, you get more Catholic Protestant intermarriage and eventually uh, that melting takes place. And and we can right. see some of that happening now with Hispanics and Asians. As well. And that was a huge issue when Kennedy was president is that oh, he was yeah. a Catholic. I mean, today it's not as much of a point. Maybe it would be for a newer group of people. But back then in the 60s, that was a kind of a revolutionary event. So you're, you're right. You see those fusing, coming together. Jews and Catholics are more now more integrated. The U.S. is pretty remarkable, too, because a lot of them are uh, Jews go to the right, which in most a lot of other countries is not palatable, maybe in some of those other states. But, I mean, can you explain how how that all led to this kind of rise of, of right wing populism and Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, who votes for Trump and who voted for Brexit in the UK or who votes for populist right parties like um, the formerly the Front National, now the Rassemblement National of Marine Le Pen in, in France, for example, um, essentially the number one issue is always immigration. Uh, just to give you a few statistics, votes for the Sweden Democrats, which is the populist party in Sweden, 99% uh, of um, people voting for that party said immigration should be reduced. Uh, now, it's not quite that extreme with Trump, but it's 70% versus only 20% for Democrats uh, amongst, amongst white Americans. So 50-point divide. That 50-point divide uh, is, if anything, even larger in Canada between uh, um, conservative and, and liberal or NDP voters. Uh, in Britain, it's about sort of, it's over 40 points as well between conservative and labor voters. So yeah, immigration uh, is absolutely central. Now, it's not the case that uh, immigration attitudes shift. When, so what happens in Europe, if we just take the period after 2014, you have a big rise in the number of people entering Europe um, from roughly 500,000 a year, rising to a peak in the migrant crisis in late 2015 of um, something like 2.2 million. So you have this massive increase. And along with that immigration, it's not that people who were uh, pro-immigration become anti-immigration. It's that the majority of the population wanted fewer immigrants, but they ranked immigration as the number five or six issue after the economy and healthcare and other things. As the numbers start to increase, for those people, immigration rises from number issue number five, six to issue number one or two. Uh, and once that happens, uh, populist parties really start to, to increase their polling numbers alongside that. So there's a very uh, clear relationship between rising migration, rising uh, what's called salience of immigration, and rising populist support. We see that in nine out of 10. It's a significant statistical relationship in nine out of 10 countries. So, and that similar process occurs in Britain just prior to the Brexit vote. So immigration, absolutely key to the story. Likewise, in the US case, um, Donald Trump is the only candidate in the, only one of 17 primary candidates who made immigration central to his pitch. Um, that, and, and if you look at the numbers for people who, who voted for him rather than Cruz or other primary candidates, immigration was key to that uh, story. So I think in, in all the, these cases, it's, Immigration and immigration attitudes are tied 
not to individuals, economic circumstances, income, so on. They're much more closely tied to people's psychology. Whether you see difference as messy and disorderly or you see it as interesting, uh, whether you see change as stimulating or as a loss of something, that is, in fact, 50% heritable. People who uh, are more inclined for to see to, to, to order and continuity are going to be much more uh, inclined to be immigration skeptic and more inclined, therefore, to vote uh, for populists, um, especially at a time of rapid ethnic change. So I think that really is explaining the populist moment post-2014 that we see in Europe and, and, and the U.S. Um, and, and that's now, there are also other aspects of the story, which I'm happy to get into. Yeah, I mean, I, but I do think it's very central, right? The, the whole concept of a wall and the psychology of a wall, too, right? So it's not just yeah. a barrier, but it's also, like you said, there's deeper sensibilities that are involved there. Whether the, I mean, what's happening in the United States is positive or negative. But this, these are migration. These are huge issues that are going to really be vexing to so many people for decades to come. But uh, so you see that happening in England. I think it's going to be, I mean, with the, the U.S., it's going to be a pronou pronounced shift once, the, I mean, these words that we use today won't even be applied. Minority, majority are going to be completely different. What's going to happen then once the, the so-called, I mean, these terms that you hear about white supremacy or something like that, once there's no argument behind that, if there's not over 50% of the population? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one, obviously, because of the Hispanic population, a lot, you know, half of whom identifies white, and the ones who do identify as white are more likely to vote for Trump. So it's it's a kind of a messy thing at the edges, right? And, and so some people have argued that people who are, say, half, half Asian and half white or part Hispanic and part white will actually kind of be more or less part of the white group, and therefore it won't fall below 50. And I think there's a lot of truth to that argument is kind of what I think is also likely to occur. Um, but in any case, I think the whole narrative around white supremacy uh, and, and structural racism and all of this sort of thing is a separate, you wouldn't even, even without any ethnic change, we would be facing that politics because that's a separate sort of the other part of this story, which is that the evolution of the left uh, in the West from mainly focusing on the working class, unionization, redistribution, welfare state, material issues to focusing on cultural identity-based issues, that so-called turn of the left in the 60s, um, really is, is, is also part of this picture. I mean, that is in some ways what opens up immigration as well. It also demonizes populism and demonizes immigration restriction. What it does is by making it almost impossible for mainstream parties to touch immigration as an issue, it opens market share for populism. It's a bit like the Soviet department store only sells one pair of pants. Well, the black marketeers are going to pop up selling jeans and other sort of things that people can't buy in the store. So if they're not selling lower immigration, if the main mainstream parties aren't selling that, the only people who will are the political entrepreneurs like Trump or the Sweden Democrats or, or Nigel Farage or whatever. And so in a way, these the shrinking of the Everton window and the discursive restrictions, political correctness enabled the rise of populism. Without it, Fascinating, yeah. the, 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 the right wing parties would simply have moved to take and own that issue. But because they couldn't touch it, it was only available for the populace. Once the populace moved in, then the sort of center right parties now, if you look at 
in France, in Sweden, elsewhere, they've taken on the agenda of the populist right because now somebody's already said it. Okay, now we can say it. Uh, and, and so that seems to have been the, the pattern in Europe. Now, in the U.S. is a little, bit, a little different because the Republicans have gone in that direction and then the Democrats have gone in the diametrically opposite direction, doubling down on, on the sort of political correctness that you can't talk about. So that, that has led to a very polarized uh, situation. Right. And I mean, it is interesting when you bring up the Latinos. I mean, it used to be like you talk about how from wasp to white. So it could be right. like in the future, the Latinos will just get rid of all of their ethnic ethnicity, much like the Italians or Irish. And they'll just be lumped together in this in this very generalized term white, I would say. But uh, the you broke you broke down in your book how these responses are fight, repress, flee, join how it's going to kind of, how this change is going to be assessed. What do you say is this kind of like when you talk about the left really demonizing or calling people Nazis, if they bring up, even they're against illegal immigration, what do you, how do you perceive left modernists uh, antagonism against this populist right movement that you talk about? Well, I think what we what we see with left modernism, which is the which is an ideology that is ascendant now in the high culture of the West, and this is a fusion of um, themes from liberalism. Liberalism was always concerned with identity groups, um, first Catholics and Jews, later, uh, you know, racial minorities, women, sexual minorities. That was sort of what liberalism was about. It was about equal treatment, equal rights for these groups. Uh, did a lot of good things, um, but then. Those categories from liberalism um, are plugged into a socialist worldview, oppressor versus oppressed, radical transformation revolution. So it suddenly becomes, instead of the worker state and the, the, the proletariat rising up, as in Marxism and overthrowing the bourgeoisie, it becomes people of color and sexual and gender minorities or, or women, etc., um, rising up in some ways and throwing, overthrowing this white male power structure to bring forth the, not the worker state, but the multicultural utopia. Uh, so that then becomes the new uh, ideology that then works its way through the universities into the elite institutions, uh, becoming ever, it's, it's more scaling up, I would say. And yes, there are some bells and whistles, whistles that are added in, like microaggressions and emotional safety and all these sorts of things. But essentially it is about uh, a, a sort of identity revolution, cultural revolution. And the definition of racism is expanding. There's a, a term called concept creep that's used by Nick Haslam, a psychologist, to describe how terms like prejudice and bullying come to take on to mean psychological things. You know, if I use, if I say master bedroom, that's got slave connotations. If I um, discuss whether trans women are women, then I'm sort of, in a way, committing a, an act of violence against trans people. These, this is just the way in which the um, the stretching of these definitions of terms like racism and transphobia to encompass things that are simply not uh, under any conventional or scientific meaning, uh, those things, is a tactic and a strategy to sort of shut down debate. Um, and, and that was sort of used with immigration, something like the wall, which is you know, the wall has actually, you know, many countries have walls. They're, they're simply a matter of state security. Um, nothing racist about a, about a wall at all. Now, there is something racist about generalizing about Mexicans and saying they're rapists. That, now, we can debate over what exactly Trump said. I think that is more, uh, more of a contender, but a wall, certainly not. And yet, if you were to poll, and I've done this, a lot of 
um, white Democrats would say that the wall is a racist thing, which is completely nonsensical. But that's an example of where um, a term can be stretched. The meaning of a term racism can be stretched. Right. But I think that you I think that you make a really important point how it shifted to now the left is really mo focused on racial identity as as uh, something to focus on to get towards this utopia. And I think that that's an important for thing for people to realize. How do you perceive, I mean, you talk about what the response is from people who feel threatened. How do you feel this, uh, this kind of white majority, how do you think that they're going to respond to this influx of, of people of different ethnicity? Well, I think you have a sort of uh, a split response. You have maybe two thirds of, well, of the ethnic majority group, you have a significant chunk, maybe 60% or so, uh, who want to slow it down. I mean, they're not um, racist in the sense of um, saying zero immigration, send them back, which is the caricature and the sort of um, catastrophizing narrative that is, is usually wheeled out. Um, in fact, what this is about is wanting to slow down the rate of change to permit the rate of assimilation to catch up um, and certainly not to turn the clock back. But in a way, the left modernist worldview, because it makes historically marginalized groups totemic and sacred, cannot uh, in, in any way advocate anything that might be seen as offending the most sensitive member of such a group. And therefore something like immigration restriction, which could be interpreted as meaning that um, the society isn't welcoming to newcomers, that that somehow is, is out of bounds, right? So it's this very sort of um, tripwire sensibility around anything that might offend um, members of sacred groups that have been sacralized in this, what McWhorter calls the religion of anti-racism. Um, and so, yeah, you're going to have this, this response, which on the one hand, significant numbers want things slowed down, but you will also get those who have subscribed to this religion of anti-racism, typically the more upwardly mobile, more metropolitan, higher educated, um, successful group are more likely, partly because this is a status thing, it's tied into the status system. Um, there is more, more who will gravitate to, to that identity, which is a kind of religious identity. So you can either have that religious woke identity or you will have your sort of national and, and ethnic majority identity. I also wanna make another point, which is that there's a very important distinction in the psychology literature between attachment to and dislike of the outgroup. So if a white person is attached to being white, they are no more likely to feel cool towards a black person than a white person who's not attached to being white. We, we, you can see this relationship in the American National Election Study where these questions have been asked for many years. And, and the psychology literature kind of shows that if I'm attached to my family really intensely, that doesn't make me hate the neighbor's family more. So that those two things are often conflated, that if, if somebody's sort of attached to uh, their group and to the to the country as they've known it uh, that that somehow means they they hate or want to dominate newcomers those two things are very separate there are people who hate and want to dominate newcomers but that orientation is independent uh, of actually being attached to a particular um, group and the country in a particular uh, guise so i think that's often another mistake that's made when people simply say either it's about people don't like immigration well if it's not about an economic argument then it must be about racism. Well, no, actually, it's it's about attachment, which minorities also have. So if you're African-American living in Harlem and Harlem's changing to become less African-American, a similar reaction would be, no, I don't want to see my 
my you know, historic Harlem lose its African-American character would be a very similar uh, argument. And that has happened. I mean, the African-American are also, I mean, you, the, the title of the book, obviously, White Ship, but African-Americans, too, have been alienated by immigration and these changes as well. So they might be more aligned to people who have lived in these countries for a long period of time than people might think. But uh, why do you think that the left, uh, and I think that probably goes into your point about totemic sacralization of ethnicities, is that they've dropped something that maybe you would disagree with, but the whole idea, at least in the states of assimilation to the country you're moving to, that doesn't seem to be emphasized as much presently. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, completely. I mean, assimilation is kind of a swear word in, in, in sort of, you know, high cultural circles. You know, that's something that's seen as, as awful. Uh, it's all about uh, multiculturalism and diversity and, and the idea that, yeah. Now, I, I'm not in favor of state-led, high-pressure kind of Americanization of the 1910s variety, but what I would say is recognizing that um, many people want to assimilate, they do assimilate, that that's a very equally valid way to be um, as somebody who chooses to sort of retain their difference. So that doesn't presently exist. There is no real recognition of that as a valid way to be. Um, and yeah, so I think partly this, the, the way this works is that the new left constructs this idealized category called people of color, which is not actually a, rea a real existing identity in any serious way. It's an instrumentalized construct, much, much like the proletariat was for Marxists. Marxists had very little interest in uh, working class culture. In fact, they derided it. The, the Frankfurt School would talk about uh, the working classes as, as, you know, why are they watching pop culture? This is sort of dumbing, you know, they, they had nothing but derision for things like religion and pop culture with which the working classes, which was part of their culture. But they, the working class proletariat was useful as an agent of, of revolutionary change. And similarly, I think the um, these identity groups are use, useful in a way as, a, as an agent of opposition to the kind of white male um, a patriarchy, white supremacy system that they're trying to overthrow. Um, and that is what, that's what they're oriented towards in terms of oppressor and oppressed. Um, so yeah, I think this is very central to their worldview. They need to have this construct people of color. They need them to have an oppositional identity, not, so they want minority groups to have a zero sum. Um, um, uh, Jonathan Haidt has a good way of putting this. He talks about common humanity forms of identity and common enemy forms of identity. And the new left very much wants minorities to have a common enemy form of their identity, which is anti-white, and to cooperate with each other and minimize differences between, say, South Asians and, and Mexicans and so on, but to focus on the common white enemy. Uh, whereas that's not really what minority groups, they identify with their traditions and their culture. It's it's what I call a common humanity form of identity. Um, so they want this for minorities, but they want to deny even a common humanity form of identity for the white majority. They just want to demonize that. So it's a very asymmetrical treatment of groups, depending on which group you're in. If you're in the oppressed or in the so-called oppressor, uh, you either get to have ethnicity or you don't get to have it. And, and that's it. Wow. And that is interesting. And I think that that's kind of like uh, something that got lost as you used to be maybe Italian-American, Irish-American, Jewish-American, but now you're all white. But also, you, I think this is a theme in your book, is that newer, something has changed, at least in my opinion, whereas 
maybe these new immigrants in the 19th century, early 20th century, wanted to be like the wasps. So they took on their cultural identities and behaved like them. But it doesn't seem like that is the same today. Maybe that goes on with your point. Would you agree with that, that there's a disinclination of adaptation or melting pot mentality or cultural adaptation that's going to happen now that may have happened in the past? Does that make sense? Um, yeah, definitely. And I mean, this was noticed as early as the sort of 1960s and 70s books by people like Nathan Glazer. And um, I, I, there's a book called The Rise, I think it was Novak, The Rise of the Unmeltable Ethnics. 1972. Uh, so yeah, there was already this kind of pushback against assimilation happening then. That, that was the beginning, and that's only become more intense since. But what I think in practice occurs is, you again, you have people who go the identity route, and you have others who go the assimilation route. I mean, the if you take uh, people who are third generation, who have some Mexican ancestry in the U.S., 60% of them identify as white. Uh, now, part they don't of speak is, Spanish either. Yeah, I know a lot. They of don't. But, but is this also politically regulated? So if you're a Republican and you're Latino, you're more likely to identify as white than if you're a Democrat. Um, and so it's a bit like religion is being affected by politics, too. You, you'll switch from being in a if you're Republican, you'll switch out of the Episcopalians and become a Southern Baptist or something. That is a, those are real things that have occurred. And I think likewise, um, political inclinations will shape whether someone wants to assimilate or not. Right. So then, I mean, you also have a chapter on kind of how this interracial marriage is having something really unique in world history, I would say, is this molding of really different, of really separate, formerly separate ethnicities. How do you see that playing out in the future of, of this uh, massive shift in, in populations? Well, yeah, and it, it, I think, you know, you can see historically where Protestants, Catholics, and Jews in, in the U.S., there's been a, an incredible amount of melting, uh, whereas, you know, it's very hard to find someone who who has all eight uh, grandparents of the, or great-grandparents of the same um, ethnic background uh, because of that process of melting. So actually, uh, you had this emergence of this kind of Euro-American white group um, after the 60s and 70s. I think something similar will happen uh, with with a sort of, in a way, the mixed race majority emerging in very much next century. That's a development that's going to take off towards the end of our century. I did some projections for, for England where I've got pretty good data and I worked with a demographer. Um, and you can see that, you know, as of 2050, it's only like 7% um, mixed race in, in England. And then by the end of the century, it's like 30%. And then very quickly... 2150, it's up to 75%, and then it's almost everybody. So it's sort of one of these exponential things that'll happen at the end, more towards the end of our century. We won't really see evidence of it in a, not in a major way in our lifetimes, but I think it's, and the, what I've sort of argued in the book is that this mixed population will gravitate largely to the kind of white Anglo myths and symbols, say in the US or in Britain, uh, to the established ethnic majority symbols. Now, there will, of course, be depending on your politics, people who are kind of left-wing progressive will probably gravitate to a more kind of multicultural polyglot myth of ancestry. We've seen this in history in, in for example, in 19th century England, the, the Whigs identified with the Anglo-Saxons and then the, the uh, Tories identified with the Normans who were the origin of the uh, dynasties in, in Britain. And I'd expect something similar to occur with this, that, that this mixed population 
you know, the majority will probably identify with the established um, ethnic majority myths and memories and so on. But you will have a, a minority who will gravitate to that kind of more polyglot, multicultural uh, myth. And I mean, do you? I mean, it's really uh, going to be fascinating too, because the U.S. has been pretty remarkable in its inclusivity of all of these foreigner, foreign ethnicities and ideas. Uh, how do you see that playing out, on, really, on a political landscape? I mean, do you expect, or maybe just not in just the U.S., but in all the countries you studied, England, Canada? How do you expect that to play out? Um, well, I expect that, you know, you've got two trends. One is the increased share of non-white population who tend to vote for more left-wing parties. Um, against that, you have this steady shift in the non-white vote as they assimilate, as they become more established, they move to the right. So if you, for example, look in the United States in 2008 with Obama, you saw something like 75% of non-white Americans identifying as Democrats in the American National Election Study. Uh, as of 2019, that 75 is down to 51. So we've seen a big drop in the uh, levels of Democratic identification amongst Hispanics, African Americans, and Asians in the United States in the last, what is that, um, 10, 12 years. So I, I would expect to see broadly speaking, a gradual shift, say, from Democrat to Republican amongst um, Asians, Hispanics, and African Americans for some for various different reasons. Uh, the question is only going to be how quick that shift is vis-a-vis -vis the demographic shift in the electorate, which is faster. That will tell us what the partisan balance is going to be uh, just in terms of popular vote, leaving aside all of the kind of mechanics of the Electoral College and the Senate and so on. Gotcha. Um, well, we are coming to the end, uh, Dr. Eric Kaufman. Is there anything I missed? Anything you'd like to add before we wrap this up? Not really. I mean, I think just the the uh, the book largely talks about again these different responses to immigration and ethnic change, and then overlaid on that is the if you like the response to the response, the moralistic response to the populist, the populist response to the moralist. Uh, and that ratchet of polarization, which is where I think we're going. I, the last thing I should say is the end of what COVID does is it um, makes the economy and healthcare uh, more relevant and it cuts immigration to very low levels. As COVID fades, immigration shoots back up in terms of numbers and the economy and healthcare drop in terms of people's priorities. So I think what we're going to see is a return to the kinds of populism and the sorts of polarizing debates that we saw from 2014. As COVID abates, we're gonna be back to those kinds of culture war issues. Right, I mean, it's, it's raging, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> well, all over the place, really. Yeah, I mean, you could talk about Sweden, you have this far-right party or right-wing party, anti-immigration, almost won, right? Didn't they almost... Well, they got uh, they they were up to twenty five percent in the polls, but it's France where Marine Le Pen. That is really the one to watch if you want to look for a the next close close call in terms of populist right getting in. Um, yeah, Austria, of course, it was forty eight point five or something to to fifty two. You know, the, the populist right Freedom Party got you know missed it by one or two percentage points. That's been the closest uh, shave that we've seen so far. I think it was 2017. I can't remember the exact date, but um, the next one will be the French elections because the, uh, the numbers are close. Yeah. All right. Very interesting. Great book. 
terrific discussion. Thanks so much for your time. Again, the name is Dr. Eric Kaufman. Title of the book is White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities, published 2018. Thank you so much. Thanks, William. Thanks a lot.